Hi, Nina. Hi, Emma. How you doing? Oh, I'm not bad. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, we're recording this on a Thursday morning when the news has just been announced that um, George Osborne is the new head of the British Museum. So I'm kind of worked into a fury. But yeah. apart from that, that's sort of ruined my day, to be honest. I mean, that's um, entirely fair because... You know, I thought that my day couldn't get any worse uh, when I saw somebody on Twitter say that in the Oast House, that Alan Partridge podcast is average at best, which made me furious. <laughs> it's just fundamentally an incorrect thing to say. And then this came along, and it, we're only at 10 a.m., so I have no idea how this is going to get any worse. But <laughs> maybe it can only get better. Maybe we'll maybe finish it, recording and there'll it, be good news about something. That's true. Well, we're here to talk history is sexy so yeah that's a significant uptick in the day already it is although there is some anger associated with this episode <laughs> as well <laughs> there always is there's always <laughs> yeah so who are we janina uh we are emma a doctor of history and all things great and janina just a person just <laughs> <laughs> that's how i describe you to people uh, people say, tell me about your podcast. And I say, well, it's me and this person who <laughs> just like shows up. I cannot <laughs> argue with that. <laughs> and when we talk about history, um, she, uh, she just keeps keeps joining the calls, don't know why. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, me, historian, Janina, writer, podcaster, extraordinaire. Um, <laughs> And together we answer people's history questions that they have. Do all the research so that you don't have to. Yeah, um, so that you don't have to wade through the boring bits and get to the good bits. Yeah. Um, and today, no battles, instead libraries. Yeah, although there are also, there is some violence. There is some violence. It's no one, there's no siege. <laughs> no sieges. And there's some the uprisings about... and that sort of thing. I was about to say the good thing about maskers, but I feel like that could get taken. <laughs> could come back to bite me. <laughs> the thing about massacres is that there's no tactics, so people don't write entire books about them. Um, no. <laughs> they just say, Not- and then there was this uprising and a massacre. Yeah. Maybe uh, one or two little detailed incidents, but that's it. But no one will make you read entire massive things about them um yeah so today's question comes from lioness feather who said can you please talk about the great arabic libraries um which i think was possibly because i demanded that somebody ask us a question about the great arabic library (laughs) (laughs) um and uh, because i find them fascinating and because i always massively resent the um kind of deliberate erasure of um arabic and uh, Islamic learning and culture from a history of science and technology. Um, And originally we said we were going to talk also about African Arabic libraries and uh, Timbuktu, but uh, we don't really have time. And also it's kind of a different story from the golden age of Islamic empire um, to talk about medieval africa as well so we'll do that a different time um, yeah. <laughs> but so today we're going to talk primarily about the um abbasid caliphate uh the golden age uh in baghdad and then the return of the umayyad caliphate with cordoba um because the 
Abbasids overthrow the Umayyads, and except one guy. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. Not just is it not a siege, it's a massacre where there's one surviving person and he grows to be the greatest rival. It's like, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's it deserving of a three-part like trilogy film. 100% like a Game of Thrones level budget on just this story of it's, rivalry it's basically, in the Arabic world. The story is like... Um, I don't necessarily want to call them plucky little upstarts, but plucky little upstarts rise against the great um, great caliphate, uh, or the great caliphs, massacre all of them except one, lead a, a glorious empire of um, learning and wonder, which then collapses as their greatest rival um, survives and takes them over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about. And then today. the Spanish Inquisition comes to- crashing down on everyone's heads and ruins it all. <sighs> And then the Christians come. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of big sighs and, and then the Christians. <laughs> uh, so the period that we are talking about is like the 8th, 9th and 10th centuries. Um, mm-hmm. So the which is about 100 years after the foundation of Islam uh, under Muhammad. Um, and then that 100 years, like he founds Islam and then immediately comes like bursting out of Arabia um, with a band of followers and just takes over the whole of North Africa. <laughs> and <laughs> what was basically, what was the um, Alexandrian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire um, from like Egypt over to India um, and just takes all of that uh, and puts it under his control mostly at that time um, focused in Damascus Mm -hmm. Um, but um, and that the second then there is like this immediate split so the history of Islam basically like to be very reductive about it is that the there's Muhammad and then he does not apparently make it clear enough who his successor is um, classic <laughs> which is a problem that comes up a lot um, <laughs> yeah but he does not make it clear enough um and there is an instant split after his death um which is now the historical basis for the split between Shia and Sunni Islam today um this is it becomes obviously more complicated immediately um and there's now quite big doctrinal and theological differences between the two but the basic difference is that shia um muslims followed believed that the rightful successor was muhammad's son-in-law who's called ali mm-hmm. um and they believe that he was decided to be the the successor so they follow him and then sunni um muslims believe that the rightful successor the second caliph was um his father-in-law um abu bakar um and that is the difference (laughs) and that is an instant split in in the empire Um, and they both go off in their um opposite directions um and the umayyads are the sunni side of the situation um and they are by far the more successful I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Umayyads have an empire based in Damascus, which is going on quite happily and fighting with the Byzantines and defeating people. And then all of a sudden, out of kind of nowhere, comes this guy called... Out, comes, out of nowhere comes Al-Safar, who um, 
leads a revolution against the Umayyad family and just massacres all of them. Just all of them, except for this is also, this is where we get to the point where not only is it like this dramatic story where he massacres everyone except one and they rise, blah, blah, blah. It also has this beautiful, like, super dramatic scene where he massacres everyone except the two, these two sons of the caliph who flee and run away from everyone and they get to the Euphrates River and they're swimming in it and they're really tired and the younger brother is like, I'm, so, I'm too tired and on the banks tra- chasing them are all of these soldiers who are like just come back we're not going to kill you we just will leave so just come back and so he lets them take him as the older brother reaches the opposite side of the river looks back and sees his brother being beheaded by the soldiers who had promised to leave him safe and then he is all alone and he has to yep. flee across the lands for years and years and it's just just so I mean appallingly tragic but incredibly also, incredibly yeah, good so, story like, cinematic and so cinematic um, yeah and like you can imagine that moment on a film of like no (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway it's so good um so al safar leads his revolution uh he massacres everybody he flies under black flags which is um now uh quite often used as a symbol by islamic revolutionaries um and then immediately dies (laughs) um successful drops dead his um son his brother sorry is uh, abu jafar abdullah ibn muhammad al-mansur um generally known as al-mansur who takes over um and he is a guy who is primarily interested in starting a completely afresh basically um and he loves maths and science and um also astrology mm-hmm. which the uh abbasid caliphates and also a lot of people in the ancient world and also a lot of people today um consider to be a very good science yeah um and so he says that he is going to restart everything by founding his own city um which is called at the time uh Madinah al salam Mm-hmm. which means the city of peace which is a nice um, way to start uh restart an empire after you've i'm not you personally but after you have inherited one <laughs> through slaughter yeah mm. where are i going to slaughter everybody in um in one city i would probably then immediately move to another city yeah. that had no people in it that i hadn't specifically put there. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so he it is um bang in the middle of all of these um land and trade city trade routes it's right on the um on the banks of the tigris it is um right where the silk roads are coming down into syria it is linked into persia um and it is a city that we now call baghdad Uh, and it is designed by astrologers which is very good uh and he gets all of these um zoroastrian one day i'm gonna say that word and it's gonna sound like a, an actual word rather than <laughs> yeah just, it's a tough something one. about that i cannot get my um he has all of these persian and zoroastrian um astrologers and they uh decide where where the best place for it to be is and what the best day is to start it so what's going to be the most auspicious day and like time um, and of day he, specifically as well it's like four yeah. in the afternoon or something where it's like the most auspicious 
where start. he's going to put down the most like the first one he lays the first brick and then it is made of these two massive circles like walls mm-hmm. um over with a four miles across um that are built along euclidean lines oh I got a little bit distracted preparing for this episode by just reading about Euclid, which I did not think would be interesting, but (laughs) super is. Euclid is fun. (laughs) Like, Um, for a mathematician. Actually, I'll tell you what, mathematicians are fascinating. Maths itself is weird and untrustworthy, mm -hmm. but... Um, mathematicians, because maths is so weird and untrustworthy, I think you have to either be a bit mad and interesting to be into it, mm-hmm. or it sends you mad. <laughs> yeah, that's, that seems fair. I just even found it fascinating that Euclid was just like, not necessarily a genius mathematician himself, but was very, very good at explaining maths understood it very well and communicated it very clearly so was able to put it down in a book that was just logical and made sense and was accessible which no one had ever done before uh which i mean that is often the way that one becomes (laughs) just to be the clearest person in (laughs) a translator from a really precise and difficult to understand thing to normal people yeah Yeah. um so that other people can use it uh, and that is one of the things that is like that turns Baghdad into uh, from a place that is just a city into a place that is a city full of scholars, which is mm. that um, they want to build it very fast, which they do. They build it in like just a ma- like a couple of years. Um, that is a because... wild amount of time to build an entire city in. It is. Um, and he brings in people from all over the world basically by sending people out and being like look i need some engineers i need some people who can work out how we make loads of bricks i need some people who can work out um how we deal with the water situation i need some people who are going to work this out um and i feel like i feel like what he's done here and i i think that um modern modern governments could learn a lot is he has wanted to accomplish things and he has sought out people who are good at those things in order to accomplish them (laughs) He does, and it doesn't matter where they're from or what they do or um, anything at all. He wants them in the city quickly, and mm-hmm. he wants them telling him and telling his engineers their theories so that they can work out how they apply this. Yeah. Um. So, like from the start, he's like, um, right? How do we? How many bricks are we going to need for this? Um. And they're kind of. He has people sitting, working out, counting the bricks. And he's like, no, um, there's got to be somewhere else. Um, So a guy called um, Abu Hanifa um, works out to a way to use a measuring stick to compute the volume of the city. Like, Mm -hmm. um, so just to work out the the maths of it, basically, was that geometry? Um, And thus working out from that, then you can divide out and work out how many bricks do we need for this section? Okay, we can expand that out and we can say we need the brick, that amount of bricks. Yeah. Um, so um, Abu Hanifa, incidentally, and I love this about 
basically the entire world up to about 1950, um, which is like, yes, I do geometry and also I am in charge of the bricks for the city. And also I am the uh, founder of one of the school four schools of sunny law and I'm a very famous jurist. This uh, is the thing. <laughs> everyone talks about the term Renaissance man as if like that was a special thing from the Renaissance when you would, the idea was that you would... try to attain excellence in lots of different avenues and you would know a lot about a lot of different things it is a there's a misnomer because it seems like this was everyone at this point in history all of these places are like full of someone who was like the royal doctor and he also was an expert astrologer and also wrote (laughs) histories of all of this stuff and no one talks about that they're all just like oh yes white men in like special renaissance 80 whatever I don't really know when the renaissance happened (laughs) the renaissance is like the 15th 16th century Mm -hmm, Um, yeah and so fully 100 years after people were doing this in Baghdad Mm -hmm. um yeah so they build Baghdad and they bring in a whole bunch of people as quickly as possible um and immediately because it is already full of people um who have been brought in to do to resolve specific problems and to build specific things it then also becomes a space where like it becomes a kind of like self-fulfilling basically like we brought in all the people who are best at this stuff Mm -hmm. and we also want anyone who has a new idea that might help us build this city um therefore we're also like people are like oh okay so that's where all of the people doing this stuff are so i will go there which then becomes that's where people are doing it's that's a, where all the yeah. best people are so it, it becomes spirals. because there are good people there other good people want to be near them so come in but also there was a policy of um like rewarding scholarship and like there was a policy of paying scholars tons and tons of money <laughs> giving them somewhere to live and stuff to eat and being like learn things and develop yeah science for us so yeah, so the f- kind of forty years of um, so this is mid eighth century to the end of the eighth century, like that fifty years where Baghdad is being built, and then the seven sixty two Mansur lays the first brick of Baghdad. By seven sixty six, the city is complete enough that the um, the Great Al Mansur Mosque can be built. Um, <laughs> so four years, which is very impressive. Um, <laughs> Uh, and at this point, um, he has tons of people in his city and he starts funding what is um, becomes known as the Great Translation Project, um, which is by Amansur and his um, grandson spend huge amounts of money very specifically on collecting manuscripts and collecting scholars from everywhere in the world except Europe which they consider to be a pit of despair um <laughs> I cannot blame them for that <laughs> um but um Mansur himself is very very interested in um the India um and Persian and Indian scholarship and so he brings in um people who are writing in Sanskrit and Hindu and in particular he comes across or he gets people to bring to him a thing called the Siddhanta um which is a uh 6th 7th century um document by a guy called Brahmagupta which introduced and basically invented um the concept of positional notation um mm-hmm. is what's officially called but is better known to perhaps you and me as the decimal system um and the digits one to ten 
It's very. Isn't this also where we get a zero? Because India had a zero and Euclid did not. Euclid, in fact, the Greek and Roman world and the European world had no concept of zero. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) They did not have a zero. (laughs) They had negatives, but nothing in between negatives and positives. Nothing in between. Mm. Um, And they had no concept of abstract numbers or. Um, or anything of that sort. Yeah, Whereas... so it's in Baghdad that the Indian mathematical tradition gets combined with the Greek one to give us yeah. all the maths that we use today. Exactly. And it is a, it's a theological concept um, in the Siddhanta. It is, um, like it is a partly a, a, an accounting concept mm-hmm. um, as just a space, but it is also a theolo- like the theological concept of nothingness. Um, yeah. Is an a, a Buddhist issue, um, which is also it like is is something that is also dealt with in Hinduism and in Jainism as well. There's a lot of Jain um, people uh, that are issues that are just not dealt with at all <laughs> in the the Western tradition. Um, and so this is the point at which um, zero and nothingness and abstraction um, are uh, start to be discovered almost like by um they are huge concepts and very important concepts in indian culture Mm. um and in that part of the world but um they didn't tell anybody about it basically (laughs) (laughs) um or they did but they wrote it in beautiful hindu poetry yeah um, which nobody recognized as science until um al basically um and they were like holy shit This is super useful. Um, and um, that is then able to go on to... There's a guy called Al-Khwarizmi who is like the most famous guy of this period. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that the period from about 800 to 850 is considered to be the Al-Khwarizmi period um, because he just wrote so much and wrote so many things in Baghdad. Um, he invented the concept of algebra. Mm-hmm. Um, he invented the world... Uh, invented the word algorithm there <laughs> um and he basically invented all of these sciences and technologies and concepts in maths um that were um wildly outside of anything that anyone had come up with before and the reason that he was able to do this um was because there's t- okay there's a bunch of reasons of like use that are political and technological so mm-hmm. politically it is interesting for um Almanzer. just he finds it interesting and fascinating and if you can hear something at the moment it is Livia standing directly underneath my um, microphone pairing. <laughs> <laughs> um he and so he puts um money into it he as a state-funded project wants scholars to come to Baghdad and he will give them food, he will give them board, he will give them whatever they need, he will give them a salary, he will give them a place to be and to focus on it and he will not make any specific demands of them. Um, There may be that some people are given projects to work on but um those projects are can do not have to be like you know there's not a budget that they and a series of meetings that they have to go to about dealing with it they um, have to like meet targets or they have their money funding pulled they just exactly yeah. um 
So he is doing that, and he is also funding people to go out and find new people to bring in and new documents and new manuscripts and new ideas yeah. um, that can be brought to Baghdad. And this is because he wants it to be the centre of the world, um, and he thinks it is a useful intellectual project and also a useful political project. <laughs> On top of that, now that would be useful, but if he did not have the technology to do it, it would not have been as successful. But uh, the caliphate has access to a new and exciting technology from China, um, not new or exciting to the Chinese, but very new to the uh, to Asia um, or to kind of Central Asia and into the Middle East, which is paper. It's very exciting. Um, now, paper is um, the apocryphal tale in uh, Islamic history is that in 751, the caliphate defeated the Tang dynasty um, decisively at a city called Talas and mm-hmm. took over what is now Uzbekistan. Um, and they happened to take a Chinese prisoner who, um, for reasons unknown, taught his captors how to make paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and they set up in Samarkand in Uzbekistan um, paper making um factories basically sure <laughs> um and paper is 10,000 times easier uh, and cheaper to make than papyrus um and a lot 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 easier to make than what the Europeans were using which is animal skins <laughs> <laughs> and also i think like more durable than papyrus significantly papyrus more durable. Rolls, you have to you have to roll it to use it and every time you roll it you weaken it so it just doesn't last yeah. And animal skins are one, uh, low-key disgusting, um, <laughs> and two, dry out and crumble if, mm. in your hands, basically, again, as you are using them. Um, and so you, what you get from um, medieval manuscripts is um, sometimes very beautiful uh, repairs of animal skin manuscripts, but they are repaired be- with, like, they being sewn together because there's just whacking great holes in the middle of the text which is um, i guess that's it's kind of there's there's a benefit to have have having had all knowledge essentially written on shit for a while because it does set you up with this <laughs> awareness that if you want to preserve knowledge you have to duplicate it because this papyrus scroll is going to fall apart so you have to copy it onto a new one and then a new one and yeah. new one, new one otherwise it's lost i mean a lot of it obviously is still unfortunately lost, but, that um, did not happen anywhere near enough um, which <laughs> well, is well i mean we partly it didn't like... happen enough and partly christians kept burning things yeah they did keep re- repeatedly burn things yeah. um which is why um like a lot of latin literature so the muslim world never took any interest in latin literature partly because it is the language of the church and it is completely controlled by the western church who are their great enemies mm. well byzantines are their great enemies but later on um and also because they just have no fucking interest at all um, <laughs> as far as like all of the things that the romans were interested in which is largely uh, joking about willies and fighting people um just look monstrously barbaric to <laughs> the islamic world i because mean they are the thing uh, I like once you get to cordoba as well is that you have all of these christians who become super obsessed with arabic and arabic poetry and all of this because it's just so much prettier than latin which is what they're speaking and it's like one of the reasons that was given in or like alluded hinted at um in the book the book i was reading is that latin was kind of dying because everyone hated it because it sucks and then you had these (laughs) beautiful arabic poems and so there were conservative 
uh, Christians very concerned that um, about about people being sort of seduced by <laughs> beautiful Arabic poetry. I mean, it is. I do. I was thinking as I was researching this, um, and I do think this quite often whenever I am reading about this kind of thing, um, which is that had um, Arabic history been taught to me in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any point like there is a decent chance that this is where I would have gone with my career because it's so fascinating and so like all you learn about in um like British and European history is wars yeah uh, and battles and more wars and more battles and then a king and a queen and they're very boring yeah. um which is why I have no interest in modern European history at all and then the first history that I came across that wasn't that was um, Roman history where all of a sudden they were like here's this guy He, uh, they're all just chaos people and they do chaos things <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was like these people are chaos people and I love them <laughs> <laughs> um, which they are and I do and you know the fascination for me about the Romans is the um, kind of horrible disconnect and that between the idea that they sold off themselves and that was bought wholeheartedly by the Renaissance and post-Renaissance West of them as glorification of all that is good about culture mm-hmm. um, and the fact that they are monstrous chaos barbarians. Yeah. Um, like, just in every way, they're just chaos people. Um <laughs> Uh, who are just so relentlessly pragmatic and like that's the thing with latin it's a pragmatic language yeah like, it just um you say things as quickly and as easily and with the least amount of waste as you possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> um and um and yeah you're just that's easy yeah. um and it's not a pretty language. I sort of love it, but it's not pretty in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But I think if I had like if anybody had ever given me a couple of classes on like the caliphate um or on like the arabic language then i would have been like oh my god this is so much fun yeah um, yeah it's so much fun anyway so they have paper um to get back to the point um, <laughs> they are not writing on fucking animal skins that fall apart they're not writing on papyrus which drops apart the second you touch it paper can be held it can be glued together um, and they, the fact that they have paper drives innovations in Baghdad um, of good ink and good glue, which means that books can be read by multiple people mm-hmm. um, and they can be notated by multiple people, which means that knowledge can be transmitted so like across generations much better than it could be previously because now you can write something down, somebody else can write notes on it, and yeah. then 50 years later that book still exists and is not collapsing. <laughs> and they put in place, I actually I don't think I actually noted this down, so I'm not sure if this was Baghdad or Cordoba, but they put in place systems for mass reproduction yes. as well where someone would read aloud a book in, in front of a room of people who will who were essentially transcribing it so you could reproduce a yeah. hundred copies at once um rather than this just like one low lonely monk which is what europe would keep doing is just one lonely yeah. monk in a tower <laughs> copying yeah. other whole work which is why so many medieval european manuscripts are covered in like just sad drawings or like little <laughs> monks just writing god i'm hungover and also terrible mistakes yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, but that's because there was this massive, um, it, almost immediately in Baghdad, this book selling culture took off mm. um, and there were book bazaars and people who um, 
and bookshops and, mm. and, and like transporting and in, books became a specialist field like merchants yeah. who could pre- preser- pre- preserve them as they traveled along these dusty middle eastern roads to yeah. get to all the different cities that wanted them yeah a guy called al yakabi uh, when he went there like uh, in the mid 8th century said that in a single baghdad suburb there were over 100 were a queen um which are bookshops mm. um so just that's a suburb of a tiny city like the city of baghdad is not a big city mm. um at this time the like central city is four miles across which is what, yeah, like a couple of hours walk um that's a hundred booksellers in that one area which sounds dreamlike yeah um, sounds amazing but um so all of this they are able to do all of this and able to be so amazing because they have the technology and they have people who are paying for it and then and this is the extremely fun bit um it becomes a way of being socially mobile um Mm. like the way that you become cool and rich and famous and um uh you know popular and draw attention to yourself is that you uh, become either a scholar yourself um <laughs> or this is my favorite bit you um sponsor scholars you become a patron mm. uh, so while people in europe in the renaissance were being patrons but largely by being patrons of um <laughs> people painting pictures of themselves so <laughs> i will pay you to paint a lovely picture of me um in baghdad and across the uh, the world they were paying people to travel around the world in order to find um manuscripts that they could bring back because if you could say that you had paid a scholar to who had found this manuscript that people thought had been lost then mm-hmm. that absolutely made your name um or paying people to study them um and it's saying, oh, I have a, you know, I have a stable of 10 translators yeah. <laughs> is like a way, like in the way that you might say, oh, yes, no, I have an enormous house, absolutely full of horses. Uh, <laughs> it's like, kind of sad, like learning about this and thinking about all my friends who are academics and who were slowly losing the will to live. Because- all I could think while I was reading this was this is... Like, I mean, I'm sure that it was, as all things are, absolutely full of bastards who stabbed each other in the back. Of course. Um, as and... is everything, everywhere, at all times. But, like, as a, like, 200-year period um, <laughs> of where the state and every rich person within that state was invested personally in just giving academics money to find stuff out and do whatever they wanted to. Yeah, <laughs> just where the concept of education was so valuable that yeah. it was paid for and encouraged. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like, like the and so Al sends people out to the um, the east of him into India um, and Persia. And then um, his uh, grandson sends people out. He becomes obsessed with the West, becomes obsessed with classical Greek learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I quite liked learning that they, he thought that... Um, the um the byzantines were barbaric um for a number of reasons partly because they insisted upon um religious purity that just drove everyone who was not a orthodox christian out of the byzantine empire Mm -hmm. and basically into the caliphate where they could hang out and learn things um and all he could see was them driving out smart people uh-huh. to him. 
It's not unreasonable. Um, and then because they um, repressed and destroyed um, a lot of classical Greek, like they obviously destroyed, um, like would kill philosophers mm-hmm. and um, destroyed a lot of classical Greek knowledge and were deliberately not uh, reproducing it. And as far as he could see, they were rejecting their own patrimony their own heritage um because he was looking at euclid and um all of and aristotle mm-hmm. um and plato and hippocrates and ptolemy and all of these um people who were writing in the fifth and fourth century um uh, in greece um and he thought that they were like that that they were his predecessors as a space where people were being rewarded for being smart and interesting. (laughs) Um, And so he thought that they were just massive barbarians um, for failing to look after this. Um, And he, when he would, this partly drove um, his desire to defeat the, the Byzantine Empire, but every time he did defeat a Byzantine city, um, they would just go straight to churches and monasteries and take all of the manuscripts they could. Yeah. <laughs> that was like their best booty. Um, was like every time they took a city, they took as much of the um, manuscripts as they could and took them back to Baghdad, where they would translate them into Arabic and copy them out. <laughs> and like. <sighs> I mean, yeah, we are all very lucky that they did. We are all incredibly lucky that they did and that they spent so much money um, on doing it. Um, there's this couple, this couple, there's three brothers um, called the Banu Musa brothers who come up all the time because um, they are fostered by Amamun, who is um, the uh, illegitimate son of the grandson of Almansur. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he he fosters these kids and then brings them up to be polymaths, Renaissance men. Mm-hmm. Um, they they're the first people to suggest that the planets are the subject to the same forces as people on planets, um, which is like the first tiny little step towards um, the development of a theory of gravity and physics. Mm-hmm. Um, and they worked out the positions of stars and they worked out. Uh, the circumference of the earth um well this is quite good so they had ptolemy who had worked out the um size of the earth uh, mm-hmm. how big the earth was around um and it, so it says in ptolemy oh it's one i worked out it's 180 uh, hundred and eighty thousand stadia around and they're like this is brilliant don't know what a stadium is <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. Was that a, is an inch? Is that yeah. <laughs> so they do not know what that is, so they have to work it out for themselves again, which is very good. <laughs> but they, as much as doing this, um, they also boasted that they were spending eighteen thousand, what is now eighteen thousand pounds a month on salaries for translators, like their stable of translators. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, they were funding missions um, for people to travel all the way around the world to collect more things for those translators, um, translators to translate. Um, <laughs> and one guy talks about traveling from Mesopotamia all the way through Syria to Palestine and to Egypt and to Alexandria, all in search of one single specific text. Um, and yeah, it's just a really cool world. It's called the House of Wisdom um which is um like the term that you use a lot as bayat al-hakma mm-hmm. um 
but no one knows where the House of Wisdom was um, or if the House of Wisdom actually existed, whether <laughs> it was a metaphor. <laughs> but just the knowledge that was contained in the city. Yeah, exactly. So the project is called um, The Treasury of the Books of Wisdom, which is the great translation project, this desire to gather all of the world's knowledge, except from Europe, place of shit um, <laughs> and 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 keep it for future generations yeah um and they refer to the house of wisdom a lot um and sometimes it appears like it might be a place that is a library um maybe attached to the mosque or is like a specific and there are like people who talk there's this book which is kind of a 10th century um library catalogue which is a list of every book that he can think of (laughs) like every book that he knows of in existence um and that lists like directors of the house of um of the house of wisdom which suggests that it is a place but it might also just be like project managers (laughs) yeah the people who are in charge of being aware of yeah all of the things that are everywhere and saying, oh, no, we've already got quite a lot of copies of that. But I'll tell you what we've not got. We've got this mention. Of, mm. Does anybody want to go out and see if they can find this lost work of Aristotle? Um, but yeah, so it might be a place, but it might just be a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Either um, way, they had a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is basically, and also medicine is the other thing, just before I finish, which is that they're really fascinated by medicine mm. Um and um, there's um, a guy called uh, Muhammad Zakaria al-Razi, known as Razi or al-Razi, who is a Persian doctor mm-hmm. um, who invented the concept of psychology, basically, um, and also pediatrics that children should be treated slightly differently to adults. Mm-hmm. Um, he created the first periodic table, um, which um, was perfected later on, but was initiated by um, this Persian guy, um, developed the first rules for control testing. Um, so he's yeah. the first person to say, we, we need a control things. room. <laughs> yeah. And like, they basically um, invented the scientific method in Baghdad at this time um, and wrote a 23 volume medical encyclopedia called the Comprehensive Book on Medicine, which was used for like a thousand years. Um, yeah. And in Iran, they still celebrate a day for him. That um, seems justified. Yeah. It's a pretty impressive, impressive dude. Um, So basically, so this golden age lasts like three generations. So like 100, 150 years of like glory in Baghdad before, as always happens with, um, because you have to be rich and you have to be relatively peaceful and you have to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, And you have to also have long reigns for this to happen. um, And... Um, caliphs have to not be worrying about being stabbed in the head um, and obviously this is a monarchy uh, which based on a family so it immediately descends uh, yeah. <laughs> into people fighting within each other and fighting for power and everything kind of falls apart after a while but Baghdad remains like the golden city of the world um, until Cordoba kind of takes it over Yeah, um, which is Spain really, I mean now yeah. Um, and this is one of those things that reading about I found really, like, I, I don't know, I'm trying to, I've been trying to kind of pass my sort of chaos, like, <laughs> approach to history, which is basically I've decided that I'm not, I'm not a very scholarly person. So my approach is like, you know, when you move somewhere new, and then you slowly wander about it, and then you have these moments yeah. where you're like, oh, this street leads to that thing that I, you know, yeah. I was at the other day. And oh, this okay, is, this is here, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so having known a little bit about Spain as it became do- a Christian-dominant country under Isabella um, and all of that, this is where that, the the, uh, the other side of it, where it is Muslim-dominant, um, yeah. which basically... So we've talked about already, we've talked about um, the dude, the one survived... The one surviving prince who survived the massacre. Who's, so he is known as Raman the first once he establishes his kingdom. Um, and he was 20 when he fled the Abbasid uprising. Um, spent, uh, watched his brother die on the banks of the Euphrates and then uh, spent like four or five years essentially on the run, um, moving through northern Africa among the Berber tribes, chilled in Morocco for a while, which was where his mother's people were. But he was... No one really wanted to be too loyal to him because his family wasn't in control anymore. And yeah. um, <laughs> and everyone knew that the Abbasids would kill him if they found him. Um, yeah. And you do not want so to be near. Nobody wanted to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, so he decided that the only way he could survive and he could preserve his dynasty, the Umayyad dynasty, would be to establish his own base somewhere else and start from scratch again, essentially. So he tried to take um, Ilfraquia, which is now Tunisia. I probably I pronounced that appallingly badly. Um, but he didn't manage, so he popped over and onto the Iberian Peninsula, um, which had been Roman. And when the Romans were mm-hmm. there, they divided it up into provinces um, and invested a whole lot of into building infrastructure. So there's roads, there's irrigation. They took a lot of wealth, like the mines had been really oh, yeah. uh, profitable. So the Romans just got super and They rich. are very, very famous as a mining space, just like the sheer amount of um, people who died there after being enslaved and chucked into the mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when the Roman Empire in the region collapsed, basically, there was a lot of chaos and the Visigoths came in um, and were basically shit. Um, they were a warring, Visigoths were a warring people. So they amassed uh-huh. wealth and security by going out and doing battles and bringing back plunder, which is not a particularly stable way to live. No. Whereas the Muslim empire is very much a, a merchant empire. Yeah. Um, the Visigoths also, unlike the Romans before them, had never integrated with the existing population on the peninsula. They just ruled as this oppressive minority elite. Um, uh-huh. And they were... Everyone hated them. Um, they were particularly <laughs> repressive uh, to the Jewish population on the peninsula, which was, which was really large. Um, so generally, life was pretty shit. And then the Visigoths are overthrown by Arab and Berber armies, um, which at that point are governed out of Tunisia, which is answering to the Damascus Caliphate. So mm. once the uprising happens, it's all pretty chaotic. Um, so Rahman first turns up into this chaos um, he has managed to amass some supporters who are still loyal to the Umayyad family. He is a personally very charismatic leader. So he just sweeps in to Cordoba, defeated the emir who was there and um, moved into a Visigoth palace and just said, I am here. I am your, <laughs> I am your king now, basically. And Where um, is my film about him? <laughs> I know. Um, uh, We've had so many movies about Henry V, and he just... If I see one more about Anne Boleyn, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> um, and he also just immediately starts to make things practically good. You know, he brings in architects, he combines um, the architectural pr- principles that came with him from Syria, and 
adapts them to work with the Roman architecture that's already there. Um, he builds his mosque, La Mesquita, on the site of a Visigoth church, which had itself been built on site of a Roman temple. So it's this mm -hmm. holy site that has been holy for a thousand years to various peoples. Um, his main thing was he su was super into gardens and plants. <laughs> so he builds a palace garden that is just incredibly lush and he he collects plants from all across anywhere he can get them from any traveler is asked to bring plants that he can plant in his palace garden and he also combines these arabic irrigation techniques that were designed for getting the most out of a desert climate mm -hmm. with the much more lush sort of iberian peninsula which means that farms in this region were like super good they were producing yeah. it far far greater rates to the rest of europe um <laughs> just <laughs> i love when um like the fun thing about monarchy like rich monarchies is that they're like i personally am really interested in this one thing um <laughs> and so every, the entire state will be very interested in this one. And it's every so often it turns out that that one thing is gardens or the concept <laughs> of scholarship. And it's delightful. Um, yeah, and yeah. mostly it is, I am very interested in me and my power, which is very boring. Yeah, um, and every so often but sometimes it just is like, super I really fun. Like, I really like gardens and I want a lot of them. Yeah. Like the guy last week in Malta who was like, I really like falcons, and it turns out you do falcons really well. So um, <laughs> yeah. that's my whole thing is falcons. <laughs> okay, sure. It's delightful. Weird. Um, yeah, and because it was also suddenly, like, pretty comparatively stable politically farmers were able to invest in long-term crops so they planted oh. olive trees and grapevines and things that meant that you were invested for years in this patch of land with its plants um because no one was going to come and set fire to you yeah the existence of all these plants especially in the palace garden where they had been brought from wherever Raman could get plants from meant that Cordova became a center for the development of medicine because they had access to just a huge array of different plant life that can be used to treat things. And so that's where the Cordovan scientific community starts to build out from around is the concept of creating medicines out of this, this nerd mm -hmm. king's palace garden that he loves so much, which is just delightful. But there was also a, a concerted drive to be a rival to Baghdad. So they wanted... They wanted to have be as good at science and learning as mm -hmm. Baghdad was so that they could yeah. stand against them. But because so there was obvious obviously a lot of uh, you know, personal baggage and political enmity <laughs> between the two places. But because they were both devoted just to the concept of scholarship, they also had to collaborate because scholarship yeah, demands you have to. collaboration. So they had this weird relationship where they were enemies but they also were communicating and trading knowledge and ideas um cordoba built up strength by allying with the byzantines not like for trade and things and just to because essentially my enemy's enemy is my friend and Baghdad and byzantines yeah. hated each other so they used those routes as well to get um more knowledge consolidated it was uh, there was a really strong contingent of specifically jewish doctors in the area the for some i don't know i don't know exactly why but they developed among the jewish population a real love like a strong like i think there were 10 percent of the population and 60 percent of the doctors or something and they were learning and wow. developing uh medicines as well 
See what happens when you don't just massively oppress people. Well, exactly. See, it was this is a particularly chill time for religious tolerance because they wanted the knowledge. And in the court, there were like principal advisors who were Christian and who were Jewish advisors. So there was it was not equal. There were taxes on non-Muslim yeah. citizens, but compared to what it was like under the Visigoths, it was chill as hell. The whole deal with. Um, the Muslim empires is they're like, look, you can be a Muslim if you want, but we'd pref- we're not going to force you. But you can pay tax, you can worship whatever you want, however you want, as long as it's not a bother and you pay your taxes. Yeah. Um, and you, the Islamic are the elite, and we will have access to stuff that you won't have access to, and also you have to wear these special clothes. Um, but if you can cope with wearing this like special yellow hat, then do whatever the fuck you like. Yeah. And Wearing a special yellow hat and paying tax is in comparison to the rest of the world um, and where what the Christians are doing, um, where they're like, well, mm, we're going to mass deport you or massacre you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sounds better. Uh, it is significantly better. Yeah. Um, there, there was also developing the um, ideal of travel in order to learn, uh, which is partly because of one of the laws that Muhammad had set down when he established Islam was the uh, the learning and teaching are sacred. So yeah, the, essentially young men would started doing it. I mean, there's, there's obviously, there's always the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is in, in Islam, is, uh, in Islam you are supposed to do it at least once in your life. But there was also yeah, the concept the that pillars. just going out on a journey in order to partly attain religious enlightenment enlightenment but also to learn whatever scientific secular knowledge you could find from whoever you could come across and also learn to just cope with the sort of rigors and difficulties of traveling because obviously traveling at this point in time is not as easy as it is now um it's deeply unpleasurable yeah. yeah so it became a cultural foundational thing that you would go out you would learn whatever you could and then you would bring that knowledge back into the city which obviously means that there is a culture of the city's knowledge and education continually expanding um it also is a point where books become not just useful and not just revered as scientific and educational like products tools but they become a status symbol everyone wants to have a library everyone wants to have all the important books which is counterproductive often because it drives up the price of books and means that not necessarily everyone who needs them for their work can afford them because someone just wants to have it sitting in his library because it makes him look smart but hey at least it exists at least it exists and that and that economy around books drives the production of books so you know it's yeah, it's a there you are know, benefits swings around about situation yeah. there's as with all things like nothing is perfect and nothing is well, so some things are actively terrible. But yeah, most things are have you know ups and downs. Yeah. Um, and are books expensive in the moment? Yes. In the great sweep of history, they exist, whereas previously they didn't. So yeah, yeah, you know. Um, there was a sect of scholars called the Mutazili, uh, who initially were underground because um, there was a the dominant islamic religion at the point was quite conservative and mm-hmm. their whole thing was combining islamic traditions with greek theories which um was not uh was a little bit edgy for, for some traditionalists at the time <laughs> but by the reign of Raman the third um they had really come into the fore and were you know one of the dominant schools of um thought at the time um 
Muhammad I had created the Royal Library of Cordoba. There was Rahman III's son, Al-Hakim, who combined that with his personal library, with his brother's personal library, which brought the Library of Cordoba to uh, around 400,000 books. So they had this golden age period with through the reign of Rahman III and Al-Hakim II, where that was when Cordoba was at its height. Um, it's so many books. So many books. books. Unfortunately, Al-Hakim died with an heir who was only 11 years old and his vizier immediately seized power and uh, absolutely destroyed everything. He plundered. the. Uh, they, there had yeah. been a, essentially a little palace city on the hill overlooking the rest of the, the city proper. Yeah. Um, where they had, you know, had beautiful gardens and everything was wonderful. The vizier Al-Mansur plundered it completely to build himself a new one on the other side of the city. He ransacked the libraries. He kept everything that was anything to do with medicine or mathematics and (laughs) destroyed everything else. Um, And slowly, as the sort of the Muslim empire on the Iberian Peninsula declined and the Catholic uh, segment of the population moved through, the Muslim cities and libraries were slowly destroyed. So the last one was Granada, uh, which was conquered in 1499 and all of its all of the libraries yeah. were, were burnt because the Catholics believed that Muslim knowledge was inherently wrong because it wasn't the one true religion. And it wasn't the one true religion. Fuck yeah. well, the Catholic Church, essentially. The House of Wisdom in Baghdad uh, lasted until the Mongol invasion, um, which was under the grandson of Genghis Khan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was 1258, the Mongol army um invaded Baghdad, sacked it, burnt it to the ground, <laughs> um, and destroyed every last trace. Um, mm. it, like, it was a, a complete and utter, um, like, ripping apart of of the whole city. And now you can barely, like, when you read archaeology reports of who, when they're trying to um, put together ancient Baghdad or the earliest walls are like we found a single brick yeah uh, <laughs> and this is and that brick was not broken into tiny pieces so this <laughs> is perhaps the most full thing yeah um yeah they completely uh just destroyed completely raised it but there is still um, knowledge that we use today that was de- like it was in Cordoba that we developed as hum- that humanity developed the technique for internal stitches that dissolve on their own that, that that was done there and we still rely on that it's like there's just so much there's so much there is so much the ma- way that this managed to um get basically from the the muslim world into the western world in like the 13th century is that um basically one guy whose name is like Abelard uh, his name is like Abelard of Bath or something like that Abelard there Abelard Adelard that's the bastard uh, <laughs> you have to edit all this out I'm sorry uh, I shall not <laughs> uh, Adelard um, he is a guy from Bath um, who kind of made his way. Uh, he heard, like everybody knows about what's going on in um, the Muslim Empire and the Caliphate. Um, he travels over there basically to have a look at what's going on, um, <laughs> specifically to travel through what he calls the land of the Crusades um, in like the 
12th century, mid 12th century, um, and copies down loads of stuff that they have been writing down and takes it back to takes it back to England, um, which kicks mm-hmm. off the English Renaissance, basically. <laughs> um, yeah. Because they're like, wow, uh, this is amazing. <laughs> Um, I can't believe they've been doing all of that there when we've been calling them barbarians all of this time. Obviously, we will still destroy them completely, but we're going to take everything and translate it into Latin. Um, and mm-hmm. that begins this um, great, this realisation that what they're doing over there is actually useful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that they are going Who'd to take as much as they can. Yeah. Um, and then that kicks off kind of 12th, 13th century, lots of, and Aristotle starts to particularly... Um, starts to work its way into European thought um, and people start talking theology and then um, then they start talking science and then it kind of works its way into eventually becoming the European Renaissance. But it's all mm. that one guy, basically, um, yeah. who, um, who kicks off what eventually ends up being a pillaging of the... <laughs> uh, and then a total destruction of the islamic world and then um we work our way to the point we have now whereby the muslim world is considered one to only be basically a very small area in the middle east um rather than a huge part of the world and two is considered mm. to be just wahhabism like just only understand like 20th century uh, wahhabism yeah. as islam and it is this is the thing that really bugs me as i was reading this is that um like so much of the understanding that kind of the modern secular understanding of religion is like that Richard Dawkins understanding that religion is either um is a repressor of knowledge um and that you cannot be you cannot be a scientist and religious um Mm. and that those two things are fundamentally opposed to one another which they patently are not (laughs) um and so much of what we consider to be science emerged in explicitly religious contexts. It's just that specific forms of Christianity in particular um, yeah. really hate science. <laughs> really hate anything that isn't themselves, unfortunately. And, yeah, yeah, they really hate... Um, and it is one particular strain of religious belief that is um, kind of anti-intellectual, effectively. Mm. But it is a it is a, a minority in the great span of human history and in the great span of human existence right now. Yeah. Um, to say that, um, and it always really, like I'm fast. I'm not a religious person, but I'm constantly fascinated by religious belief, um, and that is why that's what I study when I'm not um, talking about horrible murders. Uh, yeah. And the fact that so much of this Renaissance was driven specifically by a a religious belief in learning and and that that is what underpins this entire thing mm. um and it also underpins a lot of um of jewish scholarship throughout the jewish world yeah like there is a huge um focus on learning and discovery and talking and disagreement yeah. um that drives so much like that's you know why we have so many jewish scholars all around the world at all times um and it's just kind of a narrow little stupid and, and then there's Dawkins walking around going, oh, religion is bad and you can't be science, science, science. Like, well, yeah. mm, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's um, frustrating. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Um, but um, yeah, and then eventually 
all of this gets destroyed and starts again. Yeah. Uh, I think mm. a great takeaway from history is that everything eventually gets destroyed and starts again. <laughs> yeah, it does. And uh, that it's just really it's just really lovely to think about the the short sporadic periods in history where the people in charge are interested in things, you know? And that just yeah. having someone in charge who is interested in things is does has a huge impact on everything. It really does. And just how much you can achieve for humanity and also for your the place in which you live. Yeah. Um by paying scholars to research stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um not that I'm biased in any way because <laughs> I left academia partly because you cannot get paid to research stuff unless you're a sociopath. Um or willing to endure misery forever. Uh, or you can just be George Osborne, get your two one in history, and then inexplicably be the head of the British Museum. Yeah. Um, is yeah yeah. Um, it's it's not as good right now. What a glorious time! Anyway, so that is um, that's a broad history of the great Arabic libraries and kind of the great golden age of of. Um, Arabic science and technology and um, they were also inventing loads of stuff I have to just briefly mention the Banu Musa Brothers uh, book or the book of ingenious devices which yes. has got like it's like 1001 inventions some of which um, are super practical and some of which are just like isn't this neat yeah like a flute that plays itself yeah and, and you can imagine that they invented that and then loads of flute players in Baghdad were like oh now we're being replaced by machines <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite thing that they invented was grabby sticks. Um, <laughs> they did grabby sticks, like you know those ones that old people use so they yeah. don't have to bend down. Yeah. Um, they um like a, they inv- basically invented those, uh, but for getting things out of water. Amazing. It's also a time where like because they were were prioritizing just learning and development for its own sake, there was all the stuff that could be used for art as well. Like there was this in this book, this description of this metal tree that was just like ingeniously designed with songbirds on its branches and that sort of thing sure, was prioritized because yeah you know you've got the know-how and you've got people who are able to spend their time doing stuff like that it's also great. they're not allowed to paint people so they um get to, they don't have to spend all of their time painting yeah grubby looking noble aristocrats yeah yeah they can um paint like artists can spend their time doing other things yeah because they're literally not allowed to if they wish to be portrait <laughs> artists they can't which you know eh, but um we've got enough portraits of grubby aristocrats it's fine we've got um, a surplus i think <laughs> <laughs> okay so next week we will talk about timbuktu yeah um and the golden age of um mali yeah um my stomach is rumbling which you might actually be able to hear <laughs> <laughs> um okay so that will be next week yeah. um and yeah that's gonna be fun too great um we are if you uh, if you want things from us we're at history60.com and you can find all the things you need yeah um all of the sources all of the links all of the merch if you want to give us money then you can and we're very grateful to everybody who buys us coffee um if you want to send us a question you can do that there um if you yeah anything you fancy and um thank you to lioness feather for this question which we have had a great time with 
uh, and we'll have a great time next week and until then bye Jamila